Be seated. Amen. Well, I want to thank our musicians again. Thank you all so much for coming and being with us here today. God bless you. Got you all. Thank you so much for coming and enriching our time of worship here this morning. We thank you all so much for being here. If you're uh, visiting with us here this morning, we're so glad you're here. Uh, thank you for uh, taking time to come visit us and spend this Lord's Day with us here at Faith Bible Church. Uh, we're in a, a study right now of the book of 1 Peter. If you want to open your Bible uh, to 1 Peter, our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 11 and 12. Uh, we've titled this uh, series, uh, Still Standing. And we've made our way now to the second main section of this book. There's kind of three main sections of 1 Peter, and we've made our way to kind of Act 2. And the first section of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 10, focuses on our salvation. Uh, four times in that section, the word salvation is used, and it focuses on our salvation and the implication of that salvation in our lives. But in chapter 2, verse 11, we begin the second major section of this book that focuses not on salvation, but submission. And uh, you'll notice in chapter 2, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every institution. Down in chapter 2, verse 18, be submissive. Uh, you find uh, that word used two more times early in chapter 3. So that's really the key of this second main section of the book is for us to live submissive lives. But chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 are kind of the headline for this section. They kind of set the stage for what follows. And so I want to read these verses for us. I've titled this message this morning, Can I Get a Witness? First uh, Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. So reads uh, God's inspired word. There's an old story about a barber who'd just been saved and he was so excited about his new salvation uh, that the very next day after he came to faith in Christ, he wanted to share his faith uh, with someone who was lost. And uh, so a customer came into his barber shop and uh, the barber began to shave the man and he's just thinking the whole time of, of how he can present the gospel and he's trying to, trying to screw up enough courage to be able to do this. And finally, as he stands over the man with his uh, razor poised at the man's throat, he says, are you prepared to meet God? Now, that's probably not the best way to uh, share Christ with someone, maybe not the best witnessing technique. But I think all of us would agree that it's difficult to witness for Christ. That's why the Bible says, don't be ashamed of the gospel um, of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's something all of us struggle with. In fact, I think it's one of the most difficult things for all of us to do. And it's getting more and more difficult, I think, in our culture today to witness to our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. Uh, there's a growing antagonism today against the gospel and against Christians that's making it, I think, more difficult and more challenging to witness for Christ. Uh, we're facing a, a greater and a growing resistance all the time in our culture. Um, slander against believers is surging. Um, antagonism is accelerating. Mocking against the, the Christian faith is mushrooming. Our culture today, we all know this, I'm not telling you anything new, but our culture is becoming more hostile and more hardened all the time against the gospel. And, and that's basically the same environment that existed back when Peter wrote this letter. 
uh, to these believers scattered about Asia Minor back in the early 60s uh, AD, a part of the Roman Empire. Now, they were being uh, marginalized and mocked and maligned for their faith. They, they lived in a hostile environment. And again, we face those same circumstances today in our culture. There, there's vocal voices of opposition that are growing stronger and louder in our culture all the time. So in this antagonistic atmosphere, we need to ask ourselves the question, how can we effectively witness and draw people to Jesus Christ in this culture in which we live? Even highly resistant people. How can we make the gospel attractive and appealing in a culture that's becoming more hardened against it? Now, you and I are called to be witnesses, right? Jesus said to his followers, you are my witnesses. So how do we witness effectively? Well, the answer in our text this morning is very simple. You and I beautify the gospel and we make it attractive by living out who we are in Jesus Christ. We make the gospel beautiful and we make it attractive and believable by living out who we are in Jesus Christ. Look, make no mistake about it. The world is watching us. The people you work with, they watch what you do. They watch what you say. They watch what you don't do. They watch our marriages. They watch our homes. And more than anything else, the world needs to see the life of Jesus Christ through us. That's the best thing you and I can do for our unsaved neighbors and friends and family members. Alexander McLaren was a great 19th century Scottish preacher. He said this, The world takes its notions of God, most of all, from the people who say they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us. They only hear about Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great thought? Think about that. People in the world, they, they hear about Jesus, but they see us. We're the Bible that they read. We're the witnesses for Jesus Christ. We're his witnesses. We're his ambassadors. I mean, if you wanted to put it this way, we're his advertisement, if you will for what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So God uses our transformed lives to draw people to himself. Uh, there's a movie called Bobby that's about the uh, assassination of Robert Kennedy in 1968. And one scene involves a black chef named Edward Robinson. And he's arguing with a Mexican waiter named McGill as they're having a, a meal together as a staff. And it's a time of racial tension, obviously, in our country. And McGill is very angry at all the injustice and the prejudice he faces every day. And he can't understand why this black chef is so laid back and compliant. And finally, the chef can't take it anymore. And he says this, you know your problem, kid. You've got no poetry. You got no light. You got no one look at you, looking at you and saying, man, look at McGill. I want some of what he got. Now, I like that because our life as the people of God should be a life of poetry and light that's created by the gospel. And people should be looking at our beautiful lives and saying, man, look at those Christians. I want what they got. In fact, Ruth Graham said this, a saint is a person who makes it easy to believe in Jesus. And that's what you and I should want in our lives. We ought to want our lives to make it easy for people to believe in Jesus. That's what we should want to be. So I want to look at our text here this morning, and I want to look at three simple steps to becoming a faithful witness for Jesus Christ. You can see them there on your outline. It's our identity. It's who we are. That's on our integrity. That is how we live. And then our impact, the impact that that 
gives to this world around us. So our witness begins with our identity. Now, everything flows out of who we are, our position, our identity in Jesus Christ. In fact, everything uh, in our lives flows out of what we are and who we are. Everything else, including our witness. So that's really the starting point. So he tells us here very briefly who we are. He says, beloved. That's a form of the word love. And so he's telling us that as believers, we are loved and chosen by God. God has chosen to uh, set his love uh, upon us. In eternity past, before we were born, before time began, God set his love upon us and we became his beloved. So that's our identity. And it's because you and I are loved by God that we then are aliens and strangers in this world. Notice those two words. We are aliens and we're strangers. That's our identity. You and I are resident aliens and foreigners in this world we live in. Now, these two terms are very closely related and they're translated differently. Your your Bible may have a different translation. But the first word is uh, the word aliens or exiles. And it means a person who lives in a place that's not home. They have no right of citizenship there. And the word stranger means a person who lives alongside people to whom he doesn't belong. So it's like a temporary resident or someone whose home is somewhere else. So if you wanted to make a difference between these words, an exile is away from home, whereas a stranger or a pilgrim is on his or her way home. Now, we're going to look next week at verses 13 to 17 that talk about our citizenship here on earth. And part of living a godly life is to be a good citizen of the nation we find ourselves in. But he's telling us here at the outset that our primary citizenship is in heaven. So on this earth, every day as you and I live our lives, we're not locals, if you will. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're outsiders. We belong somewhere else. And I was out in California just last week. Somebody says, where are you from? You don't talk like people from around here. You must be down, from down south or something. You, know, you don't think about it yourself. You think you talk the right way. But when you go somewhere, people notice you talk differently. And maybe you have some different customs where you come from. And as believers, we live differently. We talk differently. We have different customs and a different way to live. Someone said it like this. A fugitive is someone who's running from home. A vagabond is one who has no home. A stranger is one away from home. And a pilgrim is on his way home. And you and I are strangers and pilgrims in this world. It's not our home. I read a quote this week, it just, it's a short one, it's one sentence, but it really arrested me. It says this, God took people who were at home and turned them into aliens and strangers. You and I, before we came to Christ, we were at home. This world was our home. It, it's all we had. But God comes and he takes people who are at home. And in the moment that we come to faith in Jesus Christ, immediately We're transferred to being aliens and being strangers in this world. After we come to Christ, we're never fully at home in this world again. We often feel ill at ease in our own culture because we don't fit in. I mean, do you ever feel like that sometimes? We should, as we live in this culture that's increasingly uh, corrupted. We aren't permanent residents here. In fact, you go back to verse 1 of this whole book. He says we're aliens scattered throughout, and he mentions these five Roman provinces. So in some ways, that's a key to this book. You and I are exiles. Our true identity is tethered to heaven. 
And its pull on you and me should be irresistible because we don't belong to this world anymore. It should change our perspective and it should change our practice and how we live. I like this story about some Christians who were visiting in the Middle East and they heard about a wise, devout, beloved old believer. And so they went out of their way to visit him. And when they got there, they were struck by how simple his hut was. And all he had inside was uh, just a, a cot and a chair and a table and a battered old stove for, for heating and for cooking. And the visitors were shocked to see how few possessions he had. And so one of them said, where's all your furniture? He said, well, where's your furniture? They said, well, my furniture's at home. I'm traveling. And he said, so am I. So am I. It's a good thought for us, isn't it? It's so easy to get tethered and tied to this world and all the things of this world. But you and I are sojourners on this earth. And we need to remember that. We're just traveling through. That's who we are. So it all starts with who we are. We're beloved by God. We're, we're pilgrims. We're strangers in this world. And then who we are gives way to what we do, to our integrity. So we move from who we are to what we do. Now, since we aren't citizens of this world, we don't just drift along with the current of this world. We look different and we live differently uh, from this world, or at least we should. And in uh, verse 11, in the first part of verse 12... Peter focuses on two things that you and I are to do. One of them is a negative and one's a positive. The first one's the negative, abstain from fleshly lusts. The second one's the positive, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Uh, One of them is internal and the other one um, is external. So he begins here with the internal. So he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers, based on your identity, to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. The real battle that you and I face every day is not primarily with people around us, but it's the passions that are within us. D.L. Moody said this once. I love this quote. He says, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any man I know. And I like that. I mean, that's, that's true in my life, and it's true in your life. I have more problem with Mark Hitchcock and trouble with him than any other person I know. B- becoming a Christian doesn't end our battle with sin. A lot of people think, you know, I get saved and the, the battle with sin is over. In fact, you could say in many ways, the battle doesn't really begin until you become a Christian. Because when we're unsaved, we, we just have an old nature But when we become a believer, we receive a new nature. The old nature and the new nature in conflict. We have that old nature as well, the flesh. And the the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And Galatians 5 describes that battle between the flesh and the spirit that takes place down inside of us. And he says here, abstain from fleshly lust. Now, that, that word there's in the present tense in the Greek. And it means to to hold yourself back from or keep away from. So you could translate it like this. Constantly be holding yourself back from fleshly lusts or fleshly desires. Now, the, the idea of fleshly lusts or fleshly desires, when we hear the word lust, we usually think of that in a sexual connotation. But the word here is just fleshly desires. It's the desires of our old nature. I mean, we read about what those are back in Galatians 5. If you want to turn back there just for a moment to Galatians 5, or you can make a note and look this up later. But in Galatians 5 and verse 19, Paul writes, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, 
which are immorality, sexual immorality of all kinds, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and then I like it, and then he says, and things like these. You just kind of keep going. You got the ideas, what he's saying to us here. But he's saying to us that these fleshly lusts, these, these desires that are produced from our old nature, the sin nature, the flesh, they wage war. And again, that's in the present tense. They constantly are waging war against our soul. And that word wage war literally means to carry out a military campaign. So in your life and in my life, the desires of our old nature are like an army of soldiers or terrorists that are engaged in a constant intentional warfare to conquer our soul. And the aim is to capture us and to make us useless uh, to God. We live every day in a spiritual war zone in our own heart and in our own mind. I like the way Chuck Swindoll puts it. He says this, for for unbelievers, earth is a playground where the flesh is free to romp and run wild. But for believers, earth is a battleground. It's the place where we combat the lusts that wage war against our souls. Look at our world out there today, man. To unbelievers, this world's a playground to them. But to us, it's a battleground because we want to hold ourselves off from these fleshly lusts that war against the soul. These desires of our fallen nature are constantly assaulting our soul. And I don't know which particular ones you deal with, but we face them all the time. You face them when you go shopping. The temptation to spend more than we have and to allow greed to overtake our lives. We face it at work. We face it when we're on social media. We face it in our homes. We face it um, at school, wherever you are. The flesh or this old nature within us is carrying out a relentless campaign against our soul, and it rears its head in a lot of different forms. There's a a story I read years ago that, that had a profound impact on me as a younger man, and it still does today. It's from the life of Malcolm Muggeridge. Uh, Muggeridge was a a British journalist. He was a a very quarrelsome writer. He was known for heavy drinking and smoking and womanizing and espousing his agnostic viewpoint. But he was uh, beautifully brought to faith in Jesus Christ. There's a story from his life, though, and actually this story, this is one of the events that led to and precipitates his coming to Christ when he realizes the depravity of his own heart. But to me, it's a story that that really brings to, to light the, 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 the gravity of sin and our fleshly desires assaulting our soul every day. Let me, uh, I'll just read it because it, it's written better than I could tell it. It says, when, when Muggeridge was working as a journalist in India, he left his residence one evening to go to a nearby river for a swim. As he entered the water across the river, he saw an Indian woman from the nearby village who had come to have her bath. She disrobed as she stepped into the water, and he could see her from a distance. Muggeridge impulsively felt the allurement of the moment, and temptation stormed into his mind. He'd lived with this kind of struggle for years, but had somehow fought it off in honor of his commitment to his wife, Kitty. On this occasion, however, he wondered if he could cross the line of marital fidelity. He struggled just for a moment and then swam furiously toward the woman. Listen to these words, literally trying to outdistance his conscience. 
His mind fed him the fantasy that stolen waters would be sweet, and he swam the harder for it. Now he was just two or three feet away from her, and as he emerged from the water, any emotion that may have gripped him paled into insignificance when compared with the devastation that shattered him as he looked at her. And here are Muggeridge's own words. She was old and hideous, and her skin was wrinkled. Worst of all, she was a leper. This creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. This experience left Muggeridge trembling. And he muttered under his breath, what a dirty, leprous woman. And then the rude shock of it dawned upon him. It was not the woman who was leprous. It was his own heart. And through that and this window into the depravity of his own life, God used this in Muggeridge's life sometime later to bring him to faith in Jesus Christ. But to me, it's a graphic picture of the fleshly lust that war against the soul. It's what James says in James chapter 1, and sin, when it's conceived, brings forth death. The dreadful, destructive power on our souls of yielding uh, to these fleshly desires. And when, when we lose the battle, we become weak and ineffective, and we lose our walk, but we also uh, lose our witness for Jesus Christ. Now in verse 12, Peter moves here from the negative to the positive, from the inner desires now to our outer demeanor. And he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Now, I like this because Christianity is more than just a, a call to abstain from bad things. That's, that's what a lot of people think Christianity is, just a bunch of bad stuff you're not supposed to do. No, it's not just a list of don'ts. There's, there, there's the things we are to abstain and hold ourselves off from, but we're also to be busy filling our lives with good things. And he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. It means your daily conduct. And the word excellent here means beautiful or winsome or attractive or fair to look at. He's saying live a, a life that's attractive and beautiful and fair to look at. Because what he tells us is the Gentiles are watching. And the word Gentiles just means the pagans, people who are unsaved and, and lost. So we ought to be the most kind, the most honest, the most trustworthy, the most merciful, the most gracious people. And, and it should permeate every area of life. In fact, really, the rest of this section of the book is going to flesh out what it means to live a beautiful life. He's going to talk in verses 13 to 17 about how we live a beautiful life in relationship to our government as citizens. Then he's going to talk about how we live a beautiful life in the workplace in verses 18 to 20. In verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, he's going to talk about what living a beautiful life looks like in our marriages and our homes. And then in verses 8 and following, he's going to talk about what that looks like just in relationship to others around us. It's to be in every area of our lives that you and I are to live attractive lives. A lot of you know the name William Wilberforce. Uh, Wilberforce was uh, a, a great man of God born in the 1700s in England. Um, he was born into a very wealthy family. He was greatly impacted by the preaching of John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace. And uh, Wilberforce in his life, as he, as he got into government, his, his main goal of life was to end the slave trade. And by the grace of God, that happened through his work and through his influence. But he, it's interesting, he was a sl very slight man. He was five feet tall and very thin. They, they called him the shrimp. But when... 
When uh, slavery was abolished in England, there was a statement that went about, the shrimp became a whale. He was a man with powerful influence in his culture because of his stand for God and for righteousness. So his first objective was to end slavery, but the second objective of William Wilberforce was to make goodness fashionable. That's what he wanted to do, to make goodness fashionable in his culture. And I love that statement because that should be the goal of our lives, and it should be one of the goals of this church to go out into the culture every week and to make goodness fashionable as we live uh, attractive lives. Now, why do we do all this? Notice verse 12. Keep your behavior beautiful among the Gentiles so that... In other words, there's a purpose here, and the purpose is so that the gospel will become beautiful and believable in the lives of those around us who do not know Jesus Christ. So, in this passage, there's a a wonderful flow to this passage. It begins with our identity, that is who we are. And who we are determines our integrity, that is what we do. And then our integrity determines our impact that we have on this world around us. And so the end of verse 12 focuses in on the impact we have if we live a godly life. Now notice he says in verse 12, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers. So there's an honest recognition here that this world is going to slander us as evildoers. And uh, that's what our world does today. We're all well aware of that. We shouldn't be surprised when this world treats us unfairly. In fact, um, notice he says that they slander you as evildoers, that they vilify us. They actually say that what we do is actually evil. And there was a lot of this in the early church. The believers in the early church by the culture were called atheists. Think about that. Christians were called atheists because they didn't worship pagan gods. Uh, they They were accused of incest because they called one another brother and sister. They were accused of cannibalism because they partook of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ as they ate the Lord's Supper. Uh, They were accused of having orgies because they called their uh, time at the Lord's Supper the agape or the love feast. And they were accused of being subversive because they wouldn't worship the Roman emperor. Now, we don't face those kind of charges today, but uh, we're we're slandered as evildoers because we're called narrow-minded and unenlightened and bigoted and dangerous and haters and out of step with the culture and on and on we could go. But what's our response to be to this? It's doing good. It's not to answer slander with slander or answer anger with anger. No, you and I are to do good. It's an excellent, winsome, noble spirit living in such a way that they really can't make an honest attack against us. And when they do, the charges won't stick. So our answer to the slander of this world is to live a beautiful life. In other words, as believers, individually and corporately, we're to be an attractional community. And I think the most powerful evangelistic tool we have is the transformed life uh, through the Spirit of God. Now, the world is watching us. In fact, uh, turn over just a page to chapter 3, verse 1. You'll see this there. The power of a godly witness. It's, it's emphasized through this book. Notice in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. It's the power of a, of a godly testimony, a godly life. 
I read some time back about a woman was telling about another woman who led her to Christ. And she described what happened, and she said this. She didn't use any arguments. She built a bridge from her heart to mine, and Christ walked over it. I mean, that's a, a wonderful picture of evangelism. We build a bridge from our heart to another person's heart, and Christ uh, walks over it. Our integrity and the way we live has a profound impact. I like what Alistair Begg says. He says, if you can't shine, at least twinkle. Now, I like that. If you can't shine, if your life can't shine, at least twinkle. Have something in our lives that's winsome and attractive. D.L. Moody says, a Christian is the world's Bible, and some of them need revising. That's true of all of us, isn't it? We're the world's Bible. We're what they see. We need some revising. But you and I are to make Jesus beautiful by the way we live. We're to adorn the gospel. We're to make it easy for people to believe in Christ. And let me just say this. As we leave here this morning in a little bit, one of the things you and I should leave on our minds is, I want to make it easy for someone else to believe in Christ this week. I don't want to be an obstacle and a hindrance to someone coming to faith in Christ. Now, let me, let me add an important caveat here. What I'm saying this morning doesn't mean that good works on their own are sufficient to bring someone to Christ. We live the life, and that life gives us the platform, but at some point, we have to witness with our lips. We witness first with our lives, but we have to witness with our lips. We, we have to proclaim at some point. I mean, we, we saw that uh, last week in chapter 2, verse 9. We're to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And when we get to chapter 3, verse 15, it's going to say, always be ready to give to anyone who asks you uh, a reason for the hope that's within you uh, with meekness and with fear. So people have to hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. They have to hear the message of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that by trusting in Him, we have forgiveness and eternal life. But, but good works back all of that up and have an attractional, missional impact. And so we reach a hostile culture around us today by living good lives in the context of ordinary daily life. Our lives commend the message. Tim Chester's got a book called Everyday Church, and he's got a lot of good stuff in it. It's a really good book, but he says this, it's not simply that ordinary Christians live good lives that enable them to invite friends to evangelistic events. Our lives are the evangelistic events. That's a well said. We just live a good life so we can invite somebody to an evangelistic event. Our lives should be the evangelistic events. Christians living ordinary life in the name of Jesus Christ. Look, we can't attract people to Christ if we're not excited about Him. Enthusiasm creates interest. Passion creates passion. You and I are to be passionate about Christ and passionate about the gospel and passionate about people and passionate about good works, and passionate about all of life. And as believers and believing in a Creator who made everything, we ought to be the most passionate, fun, happy people in all this world. Unsaved people are watching us. They're watching what we do and how we live. And notice he says here in verse 12, that they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them. Again, you and I have a responsibility to make the gospel attractive. 
How do we impact people who despise and ridicule us by living good and attractive lives? How do we answer the charges of our critics and accusers, accusers by living, living good and attractive lives? How do we commend Jesus to our family and our friend and our neighbors by living good and attractive lives? And he says, as we do that, for some of these lost people, God is going to come and visit them with salvation. Notice what he says, that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. Now that word, that, that phrase day of visitation can refer to, to any time God visits people, and it can either be judgment or blessing. But predominantly in the New Testament, this visitation is the visitation of the blessing of redemption. And so here in this passage, the day of visitation, I take it, is the day when God visits a lost sinner and saves that person by His grace. And when that happens, what he's saying here is, if you've been a witness in that person's life, when God comes and visits them with salvation, they're going to glorify God on account of the good works, the beautiful, winsome life that they've seen you live. And it's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 19. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Back in the summer of 1805, there was a, a, a number of Indian chiefs and warriors that met at a council in Buffalo Creek, New York. And uh, they gathered there to hear a presentation of the gospel by a man named Mr. Cram. And he was from the Boston Missionary Society. And after he preached the gospel to them, one of the leaders, Red Jacket, stood up and he made this statement. He said, brothers, we're told that you've been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We'll wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheat Indians, we'll consider again what you have had to say. I like that, a wait-and-see attitude. Right? We're going to see, does this have any effect upon these people? And if it does, then we're going to want to hear more. And that's the way it is in our culture today. As people watch us, they're watching to find out, do I want to hear more? Do I want to know more? about Jesus Christ and about His gospel. Look, for good or for bad, you and I are walking, living, breathing advertisements for Jesus Christ and His gospel. And we're being watched, and we're His witnesses. And so, as we prepare to, to close here, let me just ask you a couple of questions. Are you abstaining from fleshly lust that war against the soul? All of us have certain things that we battle. Again, it may be anger. It may be pornography today. Um, it may be jealousy. It may be, uh, uh, it may be greed and desire for things and money. But all of us have these fleshly lusts that war against the soul, and some of them are, are more attractive to some of us than others. But are you, are you, by the Spirit of God, holding yourself off and abstaining from these fleshly lusts that are, that are, that are assaulting your soul every day? Are you living your life to, to try to have a beautiful, attractive life so that those around you can be attracted and drawn to Jesus Christ? Are you and I praying for opportunities to not just witness with our lives, but for it to move to our lips, where we tell someone about Jesus Christ? The best definition I've ever read of evangelism is it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Look, you and I are beggars, but we found the bread of life. We have the opportunity to tell another beggar where they can go and find bread for their soul. 
But are we living a life that's attractive and beautiful to the people around us? I pray that we are. It's, it's been convicting to me this week in this passage to, to think about how attractional is my life. I pray often for opportunities to share the gospel, but I need to do it more. We all do. I'll close with this story. It's a story told by Ravi Zacharias. Uh, it's about a, a, an evangelist named Yakov, and he was ministering in what used to be Yugoslavia. And he was going through that area, and he met a man named Simmerman in a village. And he began to tell Simmerman about the love of Jesus Christ. And this man, Simmerman, was very hardened against the gospel. There had been people there um, professing to be Christians who had plundered and exploited and even killed innocent people in the village. Even his own nephew was killed by them. And this man, Simmerman, said this, they wear those elaborate coats and hats and crosses but their evil designs I cannot ignore. And he focused on the fact that these men wore these certain kind of coats. He said, they wear these coats, but, but down inside their lives are just filled with evil desire. So looking for an occasion to get Simmerman to change his mind, Yaakov said this, he says, Simmerman, can I ask you a question? Suppose I were to steal your coat and put it on and break into a bank. Suppose further that the police sighted me running in the distance but could not catch up with me. One clue, however, put them onto your track. They recognized your coat. What would you say to them if they came to your house and accused you of breaking into the bank? I would deny it, said Simmerman. Ah, but we saw your coat, they would say. This analogy quite annoyed, annoyed Simmerman, who ordered Yakov to leave his home. It's getting a little too close, right? But Yaakov continued to come to this village, and he continued to share the gospel and the love of Christ with this man, Simmerman. And finally, one day, Simmerman asked Yaakov, how does one become a Christian? And Yaakov taught him the, the steps of repentance for sin and trust in the work of Jesus Christ and gently pointed him to the shepherd of his soul. And then Zacharias closes the story like this. Simran bent his knee on the soil with his head bowed and surrendered his life to Christ. As he rose to his feet, wiping his tears, he embraced Yaakov and said, thank you for being in my life. And then he pointed to the heavens and he whispered, you wear his coat very well. I love that story. And we all need to ask ourselves the sobering question this morning, do I wear his coat well? Am I in a, an attraction for people to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Am I pulling them and drawing them to him, or am I pushing them and driving them away by the way I live my life? May God help us to, to wear his coat well. Let's pray together. You may be here this morning, and God may have never visited you with salvation. We've talked about this day of visitation when God visits a person and convicts them of their sin and brings them to faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never experienced that visitation from God in your life, right where you sit right now, you can trust in Jesus Christ. You can do what Simmerman did. You can bow your head and surrender your life to Jesus Christ and trust in Him and believe in Him as your Savior from sin. He'll wash away your sins. He'll give you eternal life. Father, for those of us who know you, we, we see all around us, Lord, in our culture, all the evidences of a, a growing hostility and a hardening to the gospel. 
Father, I pray for myself and for our elders and our pastors and our leaders in this church and for all of us here that you give us a heart for lost people. That you give us a passion, Lord, for your glory, a passion for people who need Jesus Christ. Father, help us to go out and to be witnesses with our lives, but as you give opportunity to be witnesses with our lips, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us from darkness into his marvelous light. Fathers, we leave here today, each one of us, wherever we go, in our homes this week, at work, at school, wherever it is, may we wear your coat well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.